Welcome to the Dry Bones Ministries podcast, where we strive to provide great preaching and teaching so that listeners will discover or rediscover the goodness, truth, and beauty of our Catholic faith. If you are interested in supporting the work we are doing, visit us at drybonespgh.org or follow us on social media at drybonespgh. Thanks for joining us. We hope that you're inspired, uplifted, and encouraged. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our last episode of this Dry Bones Ministries special podcast series on The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. I can't believe we've come to our end, and I've procrastinated long enough to do this final episode, and I think not because I don't want to do it, but because I don't want it to end, if that's a fair distinction. It's so good, and we've come a long way uh, coming from our our first introduction where C.S. Lewis gives us the, the full vision of nearness um, by essence and nearness by approach. And it is this nearness of approach that even if it's longer and not just the natural inclination that we have towards this love. It's the nearness of approach that brings us to holiness, which is like God. And so we've gone through and seen these other loves. We've seen even subhuman loves. We've seen affection, properly the love between parent and children, children and parents, also just a a long-standing affinity for different people, things, places. We've seen the love of friendship that in comparison to even a romance, this um, this philia, this friendship love can be really strong as it binds two people together to have a common goal, a common mission to stand side by side and especially to be able to suffer together and be there no matter what is just one of the strongest bonds And then to properly appreciate romance and how it's uh, not necessarily reducible to Venus or that physical sexual intimacy, but that romance. Well, Venus wants it, the pleasure, the act. Romance wants the person and not just any person, not just any man or woman, but this man or this woman. And it also, we, we've seen, seen, he talks about how romantic love also demands a promise that if you're going to have access to me, that's what intimacy means, right? It's the most me, that if I let you see and have what is most me, you need to promise forever. It's just a beautiful a glimpse into that love that Christ has for each of us. And that's where we lead then finally into this last love of charity. Um, And so if you're ready, let's go into it. Charity, it's the divine love. It's the selfless. It's the sacrificial. It's the disinterested love. It is the um, gift love par excellence that it's, there's no lack in it. It's only coming from a a fullness that it, it gives. And in comparison, we see all the other loves really show a lack, some sort of uh, big gaping hole that it, it really, it 
cries out, I need help. I can't do this on my own, whether it's my affection, whether it's my romance, or whether it's my friendship, it, it needs help. And so in this, we're able to appreciate truly the gift that charity is. Um, so kind of an interesting place that C.S. Lewis starts this chapter off with is an idea of rivalry between the other loves and this love and kind of what is their relationship to it. And in, in the end, he, he will kind of talk about that these natural loves need to give way to the divine love. And that can be really hard. What he invites us to appreciate, though, is that it's actually only whenever the natural loves give way to the divine loves that they can most fully be themselves. Listen to this. This is um, in the paragraph that starts, but to have stressed the rivalry earlier in this book would have been premature in another way also. The claim to divinity which our love so easily make can be refuted without going so far as that. The loves prove that they are unworthy to take the place of God by the fact that they cannot even remain themselves and do what they promise to do without God's help. Think about romance in this sense. It promises forever, and yet it's so emotionally tied that it can wane and flow back and forth. He goes on, Why prove that some petty princeling is not the lawful emperor when without the emperor's support he cannot even keep his subordinate throne and make peace in his little province for half a year? It's like, no, no, I'm, I'm independent. I can do whatever I want. I'm the one who, who makes the rules. And meanwhile, this princeling is subject himself to the king, the higher authority, to be able to have whatever uh, subjugated share in that ultimate authority. And so our, our own natural loves do that, whether it's friendship or whether it's romance, that they have this claim. They, they want to have this full authority, this full divine claim. But meanwhile, they all only share in love through charity, through this divine love. And so what a, what a really important thing to, to think about. I'm just thinking kind of a caricature, but how many people in our world really feels, feel like uh, faith, religion, really suffocates the romantic love? <laughs> Keep God out of the bedroom was a, a slogan back in the day. Um, and maybe it's still today. Do people still say that? Uh, right, it's this idea that God has all these rules about what I can and cannot do um, in, my, in my romantic relationships. And it can seem like God just keeps giving a big no to all the fun stuff. When, meanwhile, it's exactly the opposite. And just to speak anecdotally, if you look at our world right now that has rejected God, faith, any sort of first principles that would put boundaries on our inhibitions. We look at our world and we say, that, like, you have gone to the end. Or maybe there still is more. God, please let us get to the end of just like this black hole, right? Of quote unquote liberation that just breeds egotism, loneliness, despair, guilt, shame, 
uh, broken hearts, et cetera, et cetera. And um, yeah, meanwhile, to be able to submit our natural loves to God, actually, we don't lose it at all. We can find it all together. In this yoke lies their true freedom. They are taller when they bow. For when God rules in a human heart, though he may sometimes have to remove certain of its native authorities altogether, he often continues others in their offices. Beautiful, right? In submitting, subjecting our natural loves to God, we're able to find it all together. This moves him into a really interesting um, consideration, again, in the outset of this rivalry of my own natural loves to the divine love. And it's this consideration that says, okay, if I just need to hand over all of my natural loves to God, to this divine love, then should I not even have any natural loves at all? Can I just skip the process and go right to divine love? And he gives a really insightful example of St. Augustine, who in his confessions talks about the death of his good friend Nebridius. And this plunged him into just great desolation. And his moral conclusion is that one should give one's heart to nothing else but God alone. And basically it's because all human beings pass away. And if your happiness depends on something you may lose, then you're setting yourself up to be disappointed to, um, yeah, be crushed. And interesting, right? That kind of seems to make sense that maybe Augustine was thinking, I loved him too much. And that's why I'm so sad and brought to this real desolation. And there is something to this, that when we put our, our stock into things of this world, especially material things, um, we're able to see that we have a, an improper relationship whenever we lose them and are completely crushed. Um, it's like, why, why was that material thing so important to me? Like, what, what was it? Because the scriptures, the Lord, especially St. Paul, invite us to this detachment C.S. Lewis invites us to be careful about this, though. Of all arguments against love, none make so strong an appeal to my nature as careful this might lead you to suffering. But this is probably where we need to to check ourselves. C.S. Lewis says that in this passage, in the Confessions, there's... um, a hangover from his pagan philosophy that would not want him to see even the goodness in creation. And so here comes one of the greatest lines in the whole book. Here's where C.S. Lewis draws a conclusion about this idea, this tendency to want to always be safe and not love too much because I don't want to let my heart be broken. He says, Quote, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, 
You must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. End quote. Does that need any explanation? Maybe. How about this? Just to, just to think about. Have we ever had an experience in our lives where we really didn't want to make the risk? We're just like standing in the face of the investment that love demands. We were really hesitant. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Vulnerable means comes from the Latin root of wound, right? And so, yeah, to be vulnerable is to allow myself to take this risk that I might be hurt, I might be taken advantage of, I might be disappointed. And because we live in a broken world with broken humans, we've been broken, we've been hurt before. And so to stand on that cusp of taking the risk our tendency in our humanity can so easily be protection, protection. Like, I don't want to get hurt again. Like, I don't, even at the idea of Augustine, you might die. And so maybe it'd be easier if I just didn't let you into my life at all. That's such a temptation. But the temptation leads to real danger. Because if I only allow my heart to never take any risks, then I won't be hurt in that sense, but I'll actually sacrifice what my heart is supposed to do, which is it's meant to be given. It's meant to let others in. And so it'll be hard, changeless, irredeemable, impenetrable. Those like just like strong words, right? And so this, the alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy is damnation. What, here's why love is so hard. Because it requires the risk. It requires the possibility of tragedy. Why are tragedies one of the most incredible stories? Because it shows the real risk and the trust that was involved in the characters to allow themselves to be, yeah, ultimately taken advantage of. But if I never take that risk, then I'll never experience the full-throated, the full, I don't know if that's the right expression, the full breadth of the opportunity to experience real love. And if I never take the risk to experience real love, then I might as well be resigning myself to hell, which is the absence of all love. There's no risk. It's safe. I think of the, uh, he might actually reference it. It's the, it's the parable of the talents, right? Where instead of taking the risk to go and invest, I bury it in a hole. Yeah, that's a great connection, C.S. Lewis. (laughs) It's so good, right? Like, how many of us relate to the the tenant who takes his talent and buries it? It's like, oh, come on, he just didn't want to lose it. He didn't. He was actually being responsible, right? Just to bury it in the ground. 
And meanwhile, we miss this incredible investment that God places in each and every one of us to give us so, so much more than any of us deserve. This talent, this uniquely considered gift to us that we might give it away an invitation of him giving his talents away to us and that we would just stuff it is a really a rejection of that love and we might as well be uh sentenced just like that tenant take it from him give it to the one who has 10 and cast him off into the outer darkness it's like oh that's harsh it's like it's actually the proper punishment that if i don't invest i'm i'm re- rejecting the gift Okay, here's like the great conclusion. It's probably impossible to love any human being simply too much. We may love him too much in proportion to our love for God, but it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for the man that constitutes inordinancy. I've heard it said that that even in our greatest love for another person, it's still nothing in comparison to how much God loves that person. Uh, I love quoting St. Maximilian Kolbe. He defends love of the Blessed Mother Mary by saying, you know, we should never be afraid to love her too much because we can never love her more than Jesus loves her. And I don't know how that comes off, but I, I just think that's really important for us to to consider because a lot of times we might have this fear that that if I love something of the church too much or if I love something of the world too much, that it can de facto take me away from God. Here's the real Christian mystery, that God is the author and the creator of everything that is. And so by loving the things that are good and true and beautiful in this world, we actually are able to honor the creator. It's not in itself a distraction from, and particularly so with other persons made in the image and likeness of God. Sometimes, yeah, I kind of wonder if I need to say this to couples who are preparing for marriage or even on their wedding day, that as much as you want to bring the other person to heaven your goal isn't just to use the other person to like get to heaven kind of a thing sometimes that's said by priests it's like your one goal is to get to heaven and that's true right but it's not true at the cost of the actual love that god's inviting you to have for one another and that you can actually engage in that love fully without fear that that will take you away from heaven heaven that is not a place as much as it is a person so is this making is this tracking at all i don't like i heard this and my heart was just really set free that yeah i don't need to worry about loving too much or kind of like um kind of like a governor on a car like kind of tempering my my love in this world so that i can really make sure to give give my love to god um whenever i pray or celebrate mass that I can love. Like I should actually not withhold anything and be just even more generous and more free in giving that away 
And that in itself can actually expand my love for God. How's this tracking? How's this tracking? It's good, huh? It's good. He uses this to kind of talk about the idea of, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus talking about hating the world, hating even your father or mother uh, in comparison to me. And he talks about hate not as being really the emotion of like despising the other person, but it's just about putting in the proper order of not allowing them to be greater than your love for God. So do not hold back your heart. Love your mother, love your father, but make sure that your love for God is, uh, is, is the first priority. In the last resort, we must turn down or disqualify our nearest and dearest when they come between us and our obedience to God. Heaven knows it will seem to them sufficiently like hatred. This can be the real sacrifice of, yeah, really putting God first. But again, it's not, it's not giving it up. It's actually allowing it to be enhanced that I can love properly. Holy cow, there's so much to be able to, to say about all of this. Um, okay, I think we need to jump ahead um, to where C.S. Lewis is ready to kind of dive in. I am tempted, if, you're, if you'll allow me, I'd like to just le- read this uh, paragraph that starts, God is love. You ready? God is love, he says. Again, herein is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. We must not begin with mysticism, with the creature's love for God, or with the wonderful foretaste of the fruition of God vouchsafed to some in their earthly life. We begin at the real beginning, with love as the divine energy. This primal love is gift love. In God, there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. The doctrine that God was under no necessity to create is not a piece of dry, scholastic speculation. It is essential. Without it, we can hardly avoid the conception of what I can only call a managerial God, a being whose function or nature is to run the universe, who stands to it as a headmaster to a school or a hotelier to a hotel. But to be sovereign of the universe is no great matter to God. In himself, at home in the land of the Trinity, he is sovereign of a far greater realm. Pause. So again, it's this fullness that God has to give that isn't just what he does, it's who he is right? Notice God is love. Love is a, it is a verb, but to talk, so to talk about that verb being who God is, it's also an identity in as, in as much as it is also this action. And so truly to appreciate God, he's not in this static place of just like hanging out or sitting in some glorious throne. God is in full act. 
right? It's, there's no potential in God like, hmm, I could love today or I could love tomorrow or I could like, there's no time. There's only the fullness of love. And so think about you in that action of really taking the risk, making the the behavior, that saying or the doing, whatever it is to really give yourself in love to another person. That's God all the time. He never stops loving. It's who he is. And so this doctrine of God creating ex nihilo, maybe you've heard that before, the Latin God creates out of nothing. What does that mean? It's not just dry scholastic speculation, he says. It gives us this glimpse into God creating out of nothing means that it's from his own being, his own essence, that everything else comes to be. We are because he, what? Loved us into existence. Not because he was lacking and like sitting on his glorious throne, like bored. What am I going to do today? It's like, maybe I should create something and I'll make them funny looking and entertaining and they're going to amuse me or something like that. No, that's not his prerogative. It was out of the fullness that he created. And so to sustain us is not hard at all. It's effortless because it's who he is. And that love actually fills every molecule of existence because we all have this imprint in ourselves of our creator. He goes on, God who needs nothing loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He created you so that he could love you and perfect you and not out of any need, any like need to feel useful or uh, or to like to receive glory from what he's offering something like no this is he needs nothing which means it is solely a gift so that you may exist in love that you may know that you are loved and that you may cooperate with that love and come to perfection he creates the universe already foreseeing Or should we say seeing? There are no tenses in God. Already foreseeing the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the mesial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. There it is. There is no surprise for God of the cross. There is no surprise of the sacrifice or surprise in the risk. You know, you and I, it's hard enough to make the risk not knowing what it will fully demand. There's something about that with making vows or promises of obedience, getting married or getting ordained or yeah, taking vows of religious. I don't know everything that's going to be demanded. And yet I make this risk 
with trust and, and confidence in God's grace. God, however, right, and so I guess to think about what if you knew everything that was going to be demanded of you, everything that was going to be asked of you to sacrifice, would we not most likely run away in the other direction saying like, that is too much. I couldn't actually give all of that. And that's God though. He sees it all and still freely, wholeheartedly, unreservedly gives his entire self. And this is love again, that he allows himself to be taken advantage of. There's nothing in it for him. And he allows himself to be given so that we can be loved just for our own sake. This is the love. This is the the charity, the agape that only comes from God. Here's the great gift. He communicates to men a share of his own gift love, this charity. Um, but it's it's distinct, right? This gift love is distinct from natural gift love. Uh, he, he'll say, divine gift love, love himself working in a man, is wholly disinterested and desires what is simply best for the beloved. Again, natural gift love is always directed to objects which the lover finds in some way intrinsically lovable. Objects to which, to which affection or eros or a shared point of view attracts him. Or failing that, to the grateful and the deserving or perhaps to those whose helplessness is of a winning and appealing kind. But divine gift love in the man enables him to love what is not naturally lovable. Lepers, criminals, enemies, morons, the sulky, the superior, and the sneering. This is like a, an examination of conscience. Like, am I, am I loving in this way? Am I, am I loving in... Um, the way that as, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. This was Jesus's one commandment. Do you love one another? And this is where, again, in the translation, it's lost. Like, what does it mean to love one another? Well, what does it mean to agape one another, to charity one another? That's what he's calling us to do, to love disinterestedly literally to love when you will not be repaid when it is inconvenient when it is completely despicable and (laughs) like the last thing that you want to do for us to really look at how often we love because we're going to be acknowledged or repaid or the other person is just somewhat lovable like yeah uh it's so easy. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll stop. Um, finally, by a high paradox, paradox, God enables men to have a gift love towards himself. Pull like the complete condescension of God. He allows us to share in his divine gift love to one another, but also that we might respond to his love with our own gift love, that, that divine gift love to him. There's nothing that we have that God doesn't already have, except for the love that he gives us, how poor we are. 
Um, I'm wondering as I'm thinking out loud here, there's the divine gift love that says that we get nothing back in this divine charity, this divine gift love. So with God, don't we get a lot back? Don't we get everything? Like whenever I love God the way the way that he's loved me, don't I get eternal life? Don't I get a relationship with him? Don't I get the peace, the joy? Mm. Here's where something like the dark night makes sense. St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, right? Other mystics talk about this period of desolation that God would allow the soul to experience. And even if it's not that on a, a mystical level of being deprived of sensory consolations, right? That I would love God because it feels good, or I, I, I know I'm getting this reward, or um, yeah, I get something out of it. True love is tested whenever I get nothing back, whenever I have no sense that what I'm doing, the prayers that I'm saying, or or the, the things that I'm doing for God are benefiting me at all, and I do them anyway. And how many people, especially in pursuing God, how many people walk away as soon as it's hard, as soon as it's inconvenient, as soon as there's no consolation. And that is sad because at that moment, that's when you're really invited to um, receive that gift, to be able to love God as, as he loves us. Okay. Um, there are two other gifts that God gives. The one is a supernatural need love of himself and a supernatural need love of one another. To speak briefly to that, the first one, a supernatural need love of himself, it's this deep, deep, but I would also say C.S. Lewis talks about it as like a sweet recognition of my utter poverty, of just how much I really depend on God for everything and how easy it is to reject this. I want to be independent. I want to be able to make my own life. I want to save my own soul. But that gift of knowing how much I need love, I need his grace, his mercy at all moments is a real gift. And that's something to to pray for, to have that spirit of poverty. And the other one is the, um, oh, yeah, I'll just reference him here. He talks about the the grace is uh, that we become jolly beggars. Isn't that wonderful? Like a jolly beggar at the foot of the cross. Um, and the other gift is the need love for one another. And this needs a, a real transformation, just like the other need love for God, to be able to be free to accept the love of others. Huh. Is it just me or is it really hard to accept charity from from others whenever it's I have nothing to be able to offer back? I can't repay you. I can't acknowledge you or recognize you in, in a way that would make me feel less guilty for just, yeah, being really blessed. 
um, and yet to accept it, receive it. He gives the extreme example of a newlywed couple um, that right after they get married, though, one person uh, falls ill and becomes intensely disabled. And for the rest of their marriage, he has nothing to offer. And the other spouse heroically takes on the role of caring for them, loving them, serving them, taking them to all their appointments, giving them their medicines, feeding them, cleaning them, bathing them, dressing them, taking them to, you know, it's like, how long could we last to be able to receive that real charity without perhaps becoming bitter that I have nothing to offer? But in this, the gift is learning how poor I am and that ultimately before God, I am a beggar. And even before one another, to be able to learn how to receive that that love and how important that, that is, it needs to be transformed. And God can do that such that we can sweetly, joyfully allow others to bless us. That's a great thing. That's a great thing to uh, allow others to bless us and to, yeah, really love us. We're worthy of love. Um, he makes, uh, moving on, he makes a really incredible moment of how this divine love has really transformed everything. All of reality now has this incredible potential for love. Listen to this paragraph. How this can happen, most Christians know. All the activities, sins only accepted, of the natural loves can in a favored hour become works of the glad and shameless and grateful need love or of the selfless, unofficious gift love, which are both charity. Nothing is either too trivial or too animal to be thus transformed. A game, a joke, a drink together, idle chat, a walk, the act of Venus. All these can be modes in which we forgive or accept forgiveness, in which we console or are reconciled, in which we seek not our own. Thus, in our very instincts, appetites, and recreations, love has prepared for himself a body. Oh my gosh! He's so good! The love, the love becomes flesh, and that's not just in the body of Jesus. Like, it's in your body and mine through the grace of the sacraments, the grace of faith. You and I invite his love to come into our lives and to transform every relationship, every moment, every thought, every action, every saying, every breath as an opportunity for his divine love love to come and to transform and to actually breathe out that life into into everyone and everything love has prepared for himself a body that's you and that's me how i would love to have this biblical vision of the world of reality and of my own life i it's so sad how many people think that they are living um in just a pointless meaningless way like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know. I don't know what God's doing with me or like, yeah, what, what do I have to offer? It's like, 
love, love, like love, like hold nothing back and never waste a moment, never waste an opportunity to think, to speak, or to give love. And in that you are literally cooperating with the divine plan, the divine life that God is for all of eternity and he wants to bring about in time and space through you. <sighs> Thank you, Lord. What a glorious, glorious invitation. And this is the transformation that more and more I would give myself over to this moment by moment transformation of my natural loves into divine loves. Okay, I'm talking so long and I'm going to um, move on. He... He talks about heaven. He talks about heaven. Um, and in a, in a way, of course, he talks about heaven because heaven is God. It's that full relationship with him. And so to think about the, the love that we have here as preparing us for that time in heaven. I thought he... <laughs> this whole chapter is incredible. This is another just outstanding insight into the path of the nearness of approach, the path of sanctity. Um, this, is, this paragraph starts, and yet I believe the necessity for conversion is inexorable. He'll go on to say, oh, but one necessarily inherent in the character of heaven, nothing can enter heaven which cannot become heavenly. Man can ascend to heaven only because the Christ who died and ascended to heaven is formed in him. Must we not suppose that the same is true of a man's loves? So I don't know why I've just never thought about this before. And maybe it's my misperception of holiness of Jesus says, I think in the Gospel of John chapter 3, that nothing can ascend to heaven except the Son of Man, which has come down from heaven. And in this, we see like this real, real uh, understanding of how important the church is, because the church is Christ's body. And unless we are incorporated into his body, we cannot ascend with him, the head, back to heaven, back to the Father. And so I guess I've always just kind of thought about that being kind of a vague, oh, I just need to be a part of the church. I need to believe. I need to have faith. I need to practice my faith and just kind of be holy by sinning less and <laughs> just like, yeah, being more faithful. But this also is our, our the need of our transformation of our loves, that our loves will become move from natural to divine. Natural loves can hope for eternity only insofar as they have allowed themselves to be taken into the eternity of charity. I was thinking, like, this is purgatory, right? He says, um, that process will always involve a kind of death. There's no escape. In my love for wife or friend, the only eternal element is the transforming presence of love himself. This is purgatory. This is allowing our loves to be purified. Uh, even those really good loves. 
it's still, oh my goodness. Is there room for natural loves in heaven? I'm wondering if C.S. Lewis is completely right about this. Don't we also know that there is like real affection in the heart of God? Don't we know that there is real romance? Don't we know that in the heart of God there's real friendship? But it all it all has come to the perfection. And for us, yeah. Yeah, I think this is true. And this is just a really, really insightful way to appreciate it. All of our loves, even the natural loves that he takes on, are good and have a place in heaven, but only in so much as they are completely given over to a transformation into divine love, to be elevated in that status. Will we know one another in heaven? He asks. Will we know one another in heaven? Will I know my spouse? Will I know my friends? Will I know my my children, etc., etc.? His answer is fascinating. It may depend what kind of love it had become or was becoming on earth. What kind of love do I have with with these really important relationships here on earth? And he kind of gives some examples, you know, if it, if they're only merely natural loves for different friends based solely on based solely on helping one another out with homework or playing some sort of board game, or maybe it's going out and getting drunk, like to think of a really depraved example. It's like, do I think I'm going to recognize that person if the only love that I had was really base? Well, of course not like that. And it's not about like, so that person's in hell. It's not about that person being in hell. It's about the bond that I have with that person as having no place in heaven. So, so that I wouldn't recognize them. Kind of interesting. I think we will all be so perfectly united with God, who is perfect love. I'm using perfect a lot. I don't know what, there's no other word. Fullness of love in heaven that we will both be completely united to God and his glory and at the same time united gloriously to one another. It'll be a simultaneously knowing and, and being known. All right, this is a long podcast. You should have just read the read the whole book yourself. <laughs> um, he concludes here. Are you ready? Um, in the paragraph that starts, for the dream of finding our end. Just that second second line. I'm going to read the, read the paragraph because it's so good. We were made for God only by being in some respect like him, only by being a manifestation of his beauty, loving kindness, wisdom, or goodness has any earthly beloved excited our love. It is not that we have loved them too much, but that we did not quite understand what we were loving. It is not that we shall be asked to turn from them so dearly familiar to a stranger. When we see the face of God, we shall know that we have always known it. He has been a party too, has made, sustained, and moved, movement, moment by moment within all our earthly experiences of innocent love. All that was true love in them was 
even on earth, far more his than ours, and ours only because his. In heaven there will be no anguish and no duty of turning away from our earthly beloveds, first because we shall have already turned from the portraits to the original, from the rivulets to the fountain, from the creatures he made lovable to love himself. But secondly, because we shall find them all in him. By loving him more than them, we shall love them more than we now do. Is it easy to love God? asks an old author. It is easy, he replies, to those who do it. I have included two graces under the word charity, but God, says C.S. Lewis, can give a third. He can awake in man towards himself a supernatural, appreciative love. This is of all gifts the most to be desired. Here, not in our natural loves, nor even in ethics, lies the true center of all human and angelic life. With this, all things are possible. What a great thing to um, ask for. Yeah, do we understand that? That why would C.S. Lewis say that's the greatest of gifts? The, the most to be desired, this appreciative love. Well, I think appreciative love for charity, for that supernatural gift love, is recognizing the full import, the full majesty of what that gift is. And just think about like the difference in any sort of passion that or interest that you might have when there's a real appreciation of it. It's this drive. It's this motivator that is second to none. I can, I can know all about what this hobby is or what this thing is. I, yeah, I'm trying to think of a general, general example. Um, Maybe if it, maybe it's a food, maybe it's a, a task, maybe it's a game. I can know all about it, but if I don't really appreciate it, then I'm not going to have the drive and the motivation to be available for it and to make that a priority. And so to be able to not only know objectively in my head, I need to make every single one of my natural loves transformed into divine love. It's like this appreciation for just how glorious that process is and even to embrace the necessary suffering of dying to myself and uh, handing over all of my natural loves to God so that he can transform them and uh, allow my own heart to be, yeah, just crucified with him. What a beautiful thing. And so, yeah, let's pray. Let's pray more for that appreciative love that we might, in appreciating it, come to taste it Come to desire it all the more. And like St. Augustine, know that our hearts are restless until truly they rest in thee. Friends, uh, we've made it uh, to the end. And it's hard hard to conclude because it's, it's so good. And, and it just gives us an incredible path of real holiness. These loves are good. This life is good. The natural loves are good. But ultimately, our path leads us only upwards 
towards the glory of heaven. He's made us for himself. And that's why we're here. So let's inspire one another with great, generous acts of charity, with loving well, taking the risk, being vulnerable, holding nothing back. And let's pray for one another. I hope our paths cross soon, cross it all. If not, I hope that you and I can live lives worthy enough that we might be able to spend them forever in heaven. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode. To learn more about Dry Bones Ministries, events, and initiatives, and to support this podcast, go to drybonespgh.org. Thanks, and God bless you.